Well, this morning we're going to be embarking on a little sermon series, a little summer sermon series in the book of Ruth. Uh, We've been hanging out in the D-listers of the Bible, and some of the D-listers in my list, I had a list on my desk of various D-list Bible characters, and some of them were in the book of Ruth. I'm willing to bet that you may, some of you who know your Bibles well, you know the names perhaps, but the details of their life are not terribly well known. One is Orpah. We could talk about Orpah, or Elimelech, or Malon, or Chilion. Orpah is interesting because Oprah's mother named her after that Bible character, but misspelled her name apparently on the birth certificate. She was meant to be Orpah, but ended up being Oprah. I don't know if you guys knew that. Um, But all these characters are in the story of Ruth, but as I started kind of diving in and taking a look at it, I thought to myself, there's really more here than I want to do in one Sunday morning. So we're going to spend a number of Sunday mornings in the book of Ruth. We're going to set aside the D-list series uh, because Ruth is definitely an A-lister. She's got a whole book of the Bible named after her. Uh, Her mother-in-law, Naomi, although perhaps not an A-lister, is what, like a a B-list, C-list maybe? (laughs) Some of you know her details better. Uh, But what we're going to do is we're going to spend two weeks in the first chapter of Ruth. So if you haven't had a chance to read it, read it this week as part of your devotionals. Just spend a little time reading Ruth. We're going to be coming right back to it next week. But our lesson for the morning is this. I want us to walk out of here this morning with the idea firmly planted in our minds that God is at work in the darkest of times. When when we're down to nothing, God is up to something. That's kind of the thought. And as we come to the book, the first chapter of the book of Ruth, and it opens with these words, which um, clearly the author of Ruth is trying to paint for us a very bleak picture. (laughs) And here we go, diving right in, verses 1 through 7 of Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah." Uh, Sometimes I think when we read the Bible, it's an old book, and maybe you've encountered this story at other times in your Christian journey, Uh, we can skim right over these words without really visualizing the humanity of what we're reading. You, you, You picture two women on foot coming down the road in the heat of the day, and they're carrying all their worldly possessions on their backs. Naomi had not walked that stretch of road for 10 years. 
But now as she gets nearer and nearer to her hometown, Bethlehem, where she'd grown up, where her parents were buried, where she'd met her husband and where they had gotten married, where they'd farmed together, and where she had brought into the world two little baby boys, she's beginning to recognize some of the old familiar landmarks. Here's a rocky outcropping. Here's a bend in the road. The shape of the distant hills, an old stone wall. Ten years before, the last time Naomi had walked this road, she and her husband Elimelech, with their two young sons, Malon and Chilion, had left Bethlehem in the middle of a famine. The crops had failed that year due to lack of rain, and Elimelech had decided that the family should try their fortunes by relocating to Moab. And as she walks, she recognizes, and this is purely in my imagination, but I've made enough road trips to know this is probably something that happened. As she walks, she recognizes perhaps a flat place beneath some shade trees near the road. Here's the spot, she says to Ruth, where we camped that first night of the journey to Moab. And I imagine if that truly did happen, and I don't know that it did, that her heart would have hurt as she remembered that time. How they had laughed and talked around the fire as they had eaten dinner. They'd all been together then. But when they got to Moab, everything had gone well at first. They began farming and things were looking promising and then the unthinkable had happened. Her husband... The rock that she and the boys had been leaning on in this strange place in this difficult time of change had died unexpectedly. Elimelech had been the one to make the decision to move all the way from their friends and family to a strange, foreign, and friendless place. And then when Naomi needed him most, he died and left her holding the bag. I imagine she felt alone. Confused without her husband, she suddenly had a farming venture and two grieving sons to care for all on her own, the crushing weight of it all. And it all came down squarely on Naomi's shoulders. She had to be strong. She had to push through the grief to do those things that needed to be done. Planting, harvest, cooking, cleaning, managing the house, caring for the boys. And somehow they managed. It was hard. I'm sure, but they got by, and in time her sons grew up and became men. She found them wives, two Moabite girls. Malin had married a girl named Orpah, and Chilion was married to a woman named Ruth. Naomi had worked it all out. She'd arranged it. And things seemed back on track. The boys were working hard, providing for the family. Naomi was hopeful that soon she would have grandchildren running around the house. But then, right when things were looking up, tragedy struck again and then again. Unbelievably, in a very short span of time, Malin and Chilion died too. I'm sure she didn't like to think about those days. They were still too painful, still too raw, still too new. These past 10 years of her sojourning in Moab had not been kind to Naomi. They had been a walking nightmare of death, grief, shattered dreams, back-breaking work, loneliness, despair, 
one tragedy after another, and she was left with the conclusion that she was cursed by God. When her two sons had died and she heard that the famine had ended in Israel, Naomi had decided that her best prospect was to return home to Bethlehem. Without a male provider, she and her daughters-in-law found themselves in a dangerous and vulnerable place. Again, without a male in the household, these are lawless days. They were unprotected. They had no means of providing for themselves outside of begging or worse. Women without family in those days were vulnerable to all kinds of terrible exploitation. Oftentimes, the desperate situation of widows drove them to do things they would not have thought about doing otherwise. So Naomi reasoned that her best prospect was to go back to Bethlehem, where at least she had some extended family relationships where she could ask for charity, rely on family ties to take her in. Robert Frost, the great poet, once defined home as the place where, quote, when you have to go there, they have to take you in. <laughs> that, was his, that was his definition of home. And that's how Naomi thinks of Bethlehem at this time. I have to go there, and they have to take me in. It may not have represented her heart's desire of what would to do with her life, but this is what was required. This is simply what survival necessitated. She was out of options. So she decided to go to the one place where if she showed up, they simply had to take her in, and that's Bethlehem. She and Elimelech had moved away from Bethlehem with money in their pouch, a growing family, hopes that they would prosper in Moab. But now she was returning there a used-up, tired, destitute, childless widow in order to throw herself on the mercy and charity of her extended family who probably forgot all about her. It's humiliating. <laughs> That's the woman who comes trudging down the road at the beginning of the book of Ruth. On the day that Naomi set out from Moab to return to Bethlehem, her two daughters-in-law had gone with her. Naomi had come, as we already said, and as she says, really, to view everything that has happened to her as a sign of God's judgment on her. She was confused and uncertain as to why God had chosen to visit her with these calamities, but she was certainly convinced that he had. And as she walked along with her daughters-in-law, she began to feel badly for them. Maybe she even felt guilty for letting them come along with her. She was cursed, she reasoned. And if she allowed these two young women to go with her, they could only hope to share in her cursedness. She had nothing good to offer them. It was not too late for them, she thought, to find another husband, another life. So she had decided to send them back to their people as well. But Naomi, here I am at verse 8, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest in each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and lifted, they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? 
Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from you, to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Now next week, when we come back to chapter 1, we're going to spend our morning talking about this decision that Orpah and Ruth made. Uh, But for the moment, we're just going to kind of set that aside. I think that's really perhaps the more substantive thing that most people tend to focus on here. I think Naomi gets less print perhaps, but we're going to start there as sort of a preliminary. We're going to get next week to this decision that Ruth and Orpah make. I hope you can come back. It's an important conversation that I think God wants to have with us out of his word. But this morning, as sort of a preliminary conversation, we need to take a look at Naomi some more, spend a little bit more time with her. And we return to the road. We return to these two women trudging home to Bethlehem. Well, back to Naomi's home. I imagine as they made their way along that all around now, as they walked, were the old familiar sights of the countryside where Naomi had grown up. The name Bethlehem means house of bread because the town is an important agricultural center for barley and wheat production in the Judean hill country. It's right in the bread basket of Judah. And as she walked along the increasingly familiar stretch of road toward the town, she could see the barley fields and the barley in the fields standing tall. They would be arriving in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, and to her expert eyes, it looked like it was going to be a good one. The news she had heard back in Moab about how God had visited her people was evidently true. As she rounded a bend in the road, she looked up, and finally she beheld in the distance the little farming town of Bethlehem. She pointed it out to Ruth. We're almost there. I wonder what Ruth was thinking as they neared the town. I wonder if she was thinking of her own family back in Moab. I'm willing to bet that for Naomi, the sight of the town caused her heart to swell painfully with a strange mingling of emotions. Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Question mark. (laughs) She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, 
And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And so ends chapter 1. After walking all those weary miles, the moment finally came when they arrived at the town, and they caused quite a stir when they showed up. This was an exciting thing in a small town, and here in the county we've all lived in small towns. We know what it's like when there's big doings in a small town. And so this woman wanders back into town, and there's quite a stir. Some of the women saw the old woman entering, and she looked familiar, but the hardships of the intervening years had altered her overall appearance at least enough so that their identification of her comes in the form of a question. Are you Naomi? (laughs) That's really what's happening here. They can't quite tell. She looks familiar, but no, it couldn't be. Is it really? Yeah, I think it is. And I imagine her hair had gone gray. She looked half-starved. Her body was stooped from years of hard manual labor. Her face was deeply etched from stress, grief, and hard living. And here I'm adding a little bit of poetic liberty, but I imagine something had gone out of her eyes. Have you ever seen somebody who's had a tough row to hoe in life? And you see him after not seeing him for a long time, and the laughter's not there anymore. The, the spark is gone. There's a dull look to their eyes. It's hard. So they say, are you Naomi? And she answers them, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means sweet or pleasant. She says, oh, don't call me that name. (laughs) Naomi's dead. (laughs) You call me Mara. Mara means bitter. I've renamed myself bitter. Don't call me Naomi. And she goes on to say, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back to your doorstep absolutely empty, (laughs) shriveled up, used up. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity against me? And here at the end of chapter 1, we reach really the lowest point of the story. Naomi has renamed herself Bitter. God's hand has gone out against her. She's cursed. It's the lowest point also for Ruth. Her husband is dead. She is now in the very position that Naomi had been fleeing, a vulnerable widow in a foreign land without the protection of family. Interesting, isn't that? That basically what Ruth did was say, I'll take your place. I'll go with you and be what you feared being back in Moab, where I had family. I'll go with you where I don't have family, but you do. She she has bravely hitched her horse to Naomi's wagon, a depressed, bitter old woman with very little, if anything, to offer her. They are desperately poor. She finds herself now a stranger among a people who are deeply prejudiced against her kind. And here, just the briefest of history lessons, Moab was the son of Lot and one of his two biological daughters. 
One of the two, one of the children that were born out of that incestuous union was named Moab. He was the father of the Moabites. This is well known to every Israelite. This is Ruth the Moabitess. The first thing any Israelite would have thought was gross. <laughs> that would have been what they thought. And here she is living among their kind, living among them. This is something that's not stated explicitly in the text, but certainly would have been present in an on-the-street level in her interactions with people as a Moabitess living in Bethlehem. Icky. You're from Kentucky, kind of a thing. <laughs> no, that's not bad. Is anybody from Kentucky here today? <sighs> Good. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to think, you know, that was a bad example. You know, sometimes when you go off script, it's dangerous. Uh, but you know, just, uh, yeah, okay, never mind, we're moving on. But as they're there, here are some of the questions that certainly would have flooded in on their mind. Where are we going to stay tonight? What are we going to eat? How are we, not just tonight, but tomorrow, what's going to be our long-term plan? Will they be treated fairly? Are they safe here? Will God, who Naomi claims has dealt bitterly with her, still visit more punishments on them? Is he done? And I felt tempted as I was preparing to deliver this sermon this morning to press on a little into the next chapter so that we wouldn't leave things off in this dark and hopeless place. But it occurs to me that maybe there are some this morning who feel that they are also at a low point. Maybe your past is filled with sadness. Maybe your present is filled with doubts and worry and anxiety, maybe even bitterness, and maybe your future is a forest of big, scary question marks. Maybe that's you. Maybe today you're not so much a Naomi, you're a Mara. And maybe we need to not move on from this moment, but kind of just steer into it, directly into it. Let's take a look into this ugly, dark abyss where Naomi was. I really do think, though, that if we were able to view these things from God's perspective, uh, it would be different. Have you guys ever had somebody knit you a homemade sweater? the kind with like a Christmas design on it. <laughs> Have you ever had one of those that was knit by some, by an aunt or a loving relative, somebody? If you take those homemade sweaters and you turn them inside out, what does it look like? It is this indiscernible mishmash of loose ends. There's no discernible pattern. It is just all the colors coming together in loose, weird strings. But you turn it right side out and all of a sudden the pattern is crystal clear. You can see what they were weaving together. And I'm telling you, very often from our perspective, life looks wrong. It's like looking at a turned-inside-out, homemade knit sweater. But looking on our present circumstances in light, light of God's eternal purposes is the belief that God is knitting something beautiful from the other side that's not yet discernible. Naomi, from her limited vantage point, is looking at a whole lot of wrong. <laughs> she just can't see anything beautiful in it at all. She can't see any discernible pattern. She just is looking at this mess of hopelessness, despair, disappointment, 
it's too late for me. But fellow Christian, what God wants, in, in James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask it from me, and I will give it to them abundantly and without reproach. And if you read that within context, James is writing about trials. And what wisdom amounts to is the ability given from God to look on our present circumstances in light of his great eternal purposes. It's the ability to believe that he is weaving something beautiful on the other side of all of this nastiness. And this is what Naomi needs, I believe. When Naomi tried to convince her daughters-in-law to turn back and return to their family, she pointed out that she didn't have any more sons whom they might marry. And that kind of talk might strike us as strange today. The author of this story is preparing us for an ancient custom in Israel in which, in the, which is going to unfold in the coming chapters, and that's going to turn everything around for Naomi and Ruth. And that's the practice among the uh, ancient Israelites of the kinsman redeemer. The custom was that when an Israelite husband died without leaving behind an heir to, to his name and property, his brother or a close relative was to marry the widow and continue the brother's name by having children with her. And this was not just designed to see that the husband's name continued or a continuity of property claims or anything like that. It was also meant to see that widows were taken in and cared for. Naomi thinks it is hopeless for Ruth and Orpah to continue in devotion to her family when their husbands are dead and they have no brothers that Naomi might offer them as husbands. And apparently she doesn't remember that she has close relatives at home that might very well perform the duty of a brother to provide for her and her daughters-in-law in the name of their dead husbands. And there is a lesson here, I think. Uh, when a person becomes bitter because of their circumstances and have decided that God is against them, sometimes they are tempted, I have experienced, to exaggerate the hopelessness of their situation. I'm not at all belittling the reality of pain. I'm just saying that when we're in that place, sometimes people have the tendency to exaggerate it a little bit to such an extent that they cannot see the hopeful signs of God's activity, his mercy and hope when it does show up. Now, in Naomi's defense, I do want to say this. Uh, what do you make of Naomi's theology? <laughs> she says, God has afflicted me. God has testified against me. God has cursed me. What do you think of her claims that God's hand has gone out against her? Is she right or is she misinterpreting things? The short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> the Bible doesn't really answer. But I, I would say this. First of all, let me say this. I would take Naomi's theology anytime over some of the weak and sappy views of God that I do hear sometimes. Naomi is completely certain about three things. She is certain about three things in a bedrock kind of way. One, God exists. Two, God is in control. And God is sovereign over all the things that have afflicted her. If they are not directly from his hand, he has allowed them at a minimum. He, she believes God exists, he's in control, and this is from his hand. And I don't think she's wrong. 
Those things are true. And even while stating that God has afflicted her, she never calls into question the goodness of God or the rightness of what he is doing. She may be confused about what God is up to, but she is not confused about who God is. And I find today that when tragedy strikes in a catastrophic way, in the lives of Christians even, very often it causes them to question not if God exists, but rather, is God really who I thought he was? And Naomi does none of that. Naomi never questions the goodness of God or his fairness. And I think that's an important thing to see. It tells us something about Naomi. Naomi does not doubt who God is, but she does seem to have some doubts and confusion about exactly why he is doing what he is doing, why he has allowed what he has allowed. And those are honest questions that any of us with a finite, limited perspective might, a- might ask in the face of God's activity. We worship a God, it says in Isaiah 55, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. And so we often look at God and go, why? Why? <laughs> And that's an honest question. I don't understand it. But sometimes his activity defies expectations. The problem with Naomi, I think, is that she had forgotten the story of Joseph, who also went into a foreign country. You might remember his story. He sold there as a slave. He was framed by an adulteress and put in prison as a sex offender. He had every reason to say with Naomi, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. But he kept his faith, and in time, God turned it all around for his personal good and for God's own good purposes. The key lesson in the story of Joseph is found in Genesis 50, when Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And Naomi is right to understand God as sovereign, in control, in governing the affairs of nations and individuals. He allows tragedy to visit his people. But Naomi also needs to open her eyes to the signs of his merciful purposes. Naomi's story is a lot like your story or my story. She is a rough, irregular stone set beautifully in the wall of God's story of redemption. Uh, I've been building a stone wall over at my house over in Washburn, and you'll take a really rough, irregular stone. It's got a slant here, and the back slopes away, and it's not quite right. But every once in a while as you're building, you're like, oh my goodness, that is exactly the shape of that weird stone. And you'll take it, and you'll just slide it right into place. And once that wall is all finished up and buttoned down looking, it just makes a beautiful story. And Naomi is like that. You're like that. Your story, in order to find meaning, needs to be swallowed up in the great overarching story of God and his redemptive plan. And so maybe even at the end of our message this morning, Naomi's sufferings have not come into focus yet, even for us, all these years later. But I promise you, by the end of our study through Ruth, you'll go, oh, God, You are building a beautiful thing. I couldn't see it at first, but I see it now. And so maybe you're there this morning. And I don't want to do a disservice to the fog you're living in by just barreling past this into the good part. 
where things starts to turn around because that's not where you're at. And I just want you in your seat right now, if this is you, to just cling to a few things that you can know for sure about your God. He is good. He is right. He is love. The hard things that are happening to you, I promise you, if we had wisdom to look at them from God's perspective, you wouldn't change a thing. It's true. If you could see them as God sees them, you wouldn't change a thing except the prayers you've been praying. (laughs) I believe that that's true. And here are a few hopeful things we can even begin to see even now. It was God who took away the famine and opened a way home. Notice the delicate touch of hope at the end of verse 22, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. If Naomi could only see what this was going to mean, not only that, Naomi needs to open her eyes to Ruth. She says, God has brought me back empty. Not so. He has given you Ruth, a woman who has selflessly, willingly followed her into this life of poverty and uncertainty because of her love for her. Very often when we're so focused on what we're lacking, we can't see what we have. But this woman is a gift to Naomi. What a blessing she is. Yet as she and Ruth stand before the people of Bethlehem, Naomi says in verse 21, the Lord has brought me back empty, and that's not true. What would she say if she could see that in Ruth, she would gain a grandchild and a future, a baby boy, and spoiler alert, that this child would be the grandfather of the greatest king of Israel, King David's grandfather, would be born to Ruth. And that from that king would come the great king of kings, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. You see how this rough, irregular stone suddenly is set within its place in the great wall of God's redemptive plan. And it's beautiful. She wouldn't change a thing if she could have known. And she would say, along with Joseph, wow, God meant all this for good. Naomi seems convinced that all that has happened is because of sins in her life. And maybe she's right. Maybe to a certain extent she was being chastened by God. Maybe there was sin involved in their decision to leave the land of promise and go and live among the Moabites. Maybe there was sin involved in the decision to marry her sons to women who were worshipers of false idols in Moab. Maybe that's true. Maybe there was sin involved there. And maybe some of God's activity was designed to chasten her and bring her back. This is not necessarily true. Again, I'm stepping out on a limb. Psalm 34, 19 says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Job 5, 7 says that man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Maybe I'm wrong to say that all this would be sin. And maybe, well, I'm not actually saying that. Maybe Naomi is. But the Bible doesn't actually answer the question, so I can't either. But I do know that there's no promise in Scripture that God's people will escape affliction in this life. And there are more than a few passages that indicate that followers of God will share in the sufferings that Christ endured. But just for the sake of argument, and I am not at all saying this is true, 
But let's suppose for just a moment that Naomi was right. That everything she said and that God did not correct her about was true. Let's say that all these bad things that have visited her was owing to her disobedience and God's displeasure with her. I would submit to you that that view of things makes the story even more encouraging because it shows a God who is willing and able to take our wayward disobedience and the consequences of our sins and redeem them both for our good and joy and also for the accomplishment of his purposes. If Ruth was brought into the family by sin, then it is doubly astonishing that she is made by God the grandmother of David and an ancestor of Jesus himself. Wow. Incidentally, when you read the first chapter of the book of Matthew and you find there highlighted a few women in the ancestry of Jesus, we find she who was the wife of Uriah. Who's that? Bathsheba. We find Tamar and her scandalous story at the tail end of Genesis. We find Rahab, who was a Canaanite woman and also, the Bible tells us, a prostitute. And we find who else? Ruth. Ruth. Here she is. I think this might well fit within that overall trend in that first chapter of Matthew emphasis on women who live out, who demonstrate by their presence in that genealogy that God is a redeemer God. He takes what's broken and he makes it whole. He takes what was twisted and he makes it straight. He makes what is wrong and he somehow makes right with it. And that's the story of your life and my life. That's the story of Christians who come to Jesus, not as people who have their act together, but as deeply broken, wayward sinners who then God takes and begins to make a beautiful thing out of. And this is true for our sister Ruth. We can never think that the sin of our past means there is no hope for our future. God rejects that sort of thinking time and time again throughout his word. God is not against you. God is for you, fellow Christian. He is a God who redeems even our sin and uses them for good when we repent, seek forgiveness, and yield to his lordship. And so I don't know where you're at this morning, but I encourage you, if you're in a Mara kind of place, <laughs> keep coming back. Let's see what God does, and let's enjoy him as he does it in the book of Ruth. Let's pray. Well, dear Heavenly Father, we have spent time trudging along the road between Moab and Bethlehem today with a woman who has named herself Bitter. And God, in her bitterness of soul, she has, she is experiencing difficulty seeing, looking on those things from your perspective. God, she just looks on a big bowl of wrong. And she has difficulty seeing anything but. And Father, maybe that's true for some of my friends who are hearing this message this morning. This is not the way they had envisioned they would, their life would go. 
and they feel that they're at a stage where they can't start over and they can't see a way forward and they don't see what you're up to. They just know that this is a dark, dark time. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give them wisdom. God, you promise in the first chapter of James that everyone who asks you for wisdom, you will give it to them abundantly and without reproach. And God, it seems clear to me from that context in James 1 that what, what he meant by wisdom was the ability to look on our trials from your perspective. God, help us to see what you're up to so we can celebrate it. God, sometimes the great difficulty of our trials is that we see no purpose in them. And so, Father, if we are struggling in the midst of something, Father, I pray that you would help us to see the why and the wherefore. What is the rhyme? What is the beautiful thing you're knitting from the other side? God, would you give us wisdom? Would you help us to see some glimpse of that? Father, I believe I have brothers and sisters who are right in the midst of it. And God, I pray that you would bless them with a supernatural abundance of that wisdom. And God, I love your generosity surrounding that promise. It's almost like you're begging us to pray that prayer, daring us to. God, give us wisdom. Help us to look on our present circumstances in light of your great eternal purposes. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.